to invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles that you have in your pews to Acts chapter 8, where we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. And as we're turning there, I want to quickly apologize. At Ammon Valley, we don't do the mutual greeting. We haven't returned to it. And after I sat down, I realized I forgot something, didn't I? So I apologize for that. It's the second time I think I've done that here this, this year. Um, I'm still just not into the swing of things. And so, yeah, just want to let you know that I did think about that. Uh, but while we're turning to this passage, it's helpful to know a little bit of the background. Uh, the book of Acts, as you know, is the book where we find the story of the Lord's people uh, right after the coming of Christ and his life, his death, his resurrection. And therefore, right, right before his ascension is where it starts. Um, and it's right at the beginning of the book, right before he does ascend uh, through the clouds into heaven, that he tells his disciple, disciples these words. He tells them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so right from the very beginning of this book, we see the sort of divine game plan of Christ. The disciples were going to bear witness to the gospel, first in their city of Jerusalem, where they were already located, and then they were going to branch out into all Judea, which is like their region. We could kind of compare this to, you're going to preach the gospel in Ripon, and then you're going to go out to all of California, uh, and then Samaria, which was the sort of northern uh, borderlands, it was the land of the unclean half-breeds, so to speak, that though they were sort of half-Jewish, they had intermixed, intermarried with, with the pagans, with the Gentiles, and so they were seen as unclean peoples. And so often you'll know the, the Good Samaritan story is as important that is, as it is because it's the Good Samaritan. It was seen as the bad person, the unclean person who actually does the right things. And then finally, after Samaria, he opens it up to all the earth. That's what they're calling was. And so for the first seven chapters of the book, we still see the early church still located in Jerusalem. And we maybe begin to start wondering why. Why haven't they already left? Why haven't they branched out and begun to go to these different places? But it's not without reason that they do stay here in Jerusalem. Uh, there's a, a large harvest, as we find, of people who are ready to hear the gospel. God has worked in their hearts, and they are ready to hear the gospel. And so we see by the thousands people coming to know Christ and to be baptized in his name. But as this little movement begins to grow throughout the book of Acts, so does the opposition. They receive the sort of fury and jealousy of the Jewish leaders, particularly the Sadducees, but also, of course, the Pharisees. And so... This opposition grows and grows. At first, this opposition is aimed at the leaders of the movement, thinking that if we sort of cut off the head, we will end this movement in general. Uh, and so what they did is they would take these leaders in, and as we see uh, in chapters 5 and 6 and so on, we see them imprison them, we see them put them on trial, and then say, you know what, we're going to let you go, but we're going to beat you, we're going to beat you up, but then we're going to toss you back out and do not talk about Jesus. Now, of course, they did not heed these orders, but they kept up their preaching. And they kept zealously preaching about Jesus Christ, and people still kept coming to the Christian faith. So that by the 
by chapter 6 and chapter 7, things come to a boiling point with the story of a young man named Stephen, who you'll see pictured here at the bottom of the screen. Stephen has just become a deacon, and he's out fulfilling his deacon duties by performing miracles and signs and wonders for people who are in need, healing people, and he's telling them about the Messiah, the risen Messiah, Jesus. And so a few Jews get upset by this. He's still preaching after they've been told not to do so. So what do they do? Well, they take him before the council, and the council begins to ask him, And they they get into a sort of theological battle, and they quickly realize Stephen can outdo them. Stephen goes into full biblical theology mode and debate and begins to explain from the scriptures from the Old Testament how this Messiah, Jesus, was the one who had been promised, and it was the one whom they killed. Those are the two points of Stephen's big sermon at the in the middle of chapter 7, Christ was the promised one foretold by Abraham, promised to Abraham as his seed. He is prefigured in the Mosaic law, and all of the prophets point forward to him, and he is the one whom you have killed. That is Stephen's message. And so, unsurprisingly, they don't take kindly to his sermon, and this is the result. Stephen becomes the first martyr for the Christian faith after the ascension of Christ. We may want to categorize John the Baptist as the first martyr, and maybe that would be a good argument, but after Christ ascends, Stephen becomes the first martyr. He is put on trial, he is attacked, he's thrown out of the city, and he is stoned to death. And so, up to this point in the story, it has seemed that for the most part, this program of evangelism that Christ had given his disciples has begun, has begun moving pretty well. It's the word of the Lord we're seeing is spreading. The word of the Lord, by the way, in, the, in Luke's account of Acts is the gospel. It was spreading, it was catching like wildfire throughout the city of Jerusalem. And it, perhaps it had seemed like that blaze was just going to keep growing and it was going to spill over. But here, with Stephen's death, it all comes to a bloody screeching halt. And while we can't know for sure, I can't help but assume that these early Christians had a single question on their mind. What is God doing in all of this? And so with that question lingering in our minds as well, let's pray and then we'll read. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning yearning to hear from your word, yearning for your grace, for your gospel, and for the hope that only comes from you. Lord, you are the God of hope. We live in a time where many are hopeless, including ourselves, if we're honest. But Lord, your word sustains us and helps us to abide. And so this morning, as we turn to your word and reflect on the story of the early church as they faced difficult moments, may you encourage our hearts as well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So now, brothers and sisters, hear the word of the living God from Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. It starts like this. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death, that is, to Stephen's death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. 
Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Though saying it is maybe just perhaps stating the obvious, this is a classic example of a situation that has gone from bad to worse. Up to this point, we've seen the incredible spread of the gospel within the city walls of Jerusalem, and what we now see here is the spread of murderous persecution. Following the stoning of Stephen, things begin to change. We see Paul and the rage of the Jewish, Jewish council begin to grow. Paul, at this point, of course, is still being called Saul. And while they had hitherto aimed at the leaders of the movement, as I mentioned, now they set their sights on all Christians. Anyone who bore the name of Christ now was a potential target for persecution. And so given the severity of the situation, despair and desperation would have only been the right response, the proper response of these Christians to wonder where is God in all of this. Maybe their allegiance to Jesus, they were wondering, was really in vain. Maybe he was just another Messiah who promised all these things, but yet nothing was going to happen. And so I wondered as they as they scrambled and tried to flee from town, as they began to leave and to go off to Judea and Sumeria, if maybe the words of Gamaliel, the, the Pharisees, one of their teachers, who spoke in chapter 5, maybe his words were still on their minds. He says this, and you may remember these famous words, if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. He says this while the apostles are on trial. Some of the early leaders are on trial. And he's, he says to his other Jewish leaders who really want to hurt them, maybe even kill them at that point, he says, Look, just let them go. Tell them to not do this anymore. And if it's of God, it will continue. But if it's not, it will fail. This is often referred to as Gamaliel's test. So while Luke doesn't exactly tell us the extent of the persecution or how long it took place, it's quite clear that this would have felt like a make it or break it moment for the early church. They were still so young, so new, they may have been wondering, is this going to keep up? Is our little movement that's beginning to grow, is this, is this going to happen or is it all going to be coming to an end? Up to this point, of course, God had been faithful with them. God had been, been gracious to them to continue allowing them to keep growing. God has been moving in ways that they were unsure were even possible. But now they were facing something new. This seemed worse. It seemed darker. It seemed bleak. And unlike us who live in 2022, they didn't have 2,000 or so years to reflect on and to see God's faithfulness. They were right at the beginning of this movement, and they'd never seen anything like this. And so it would have been all too easy for them to feel like hope was lost. Perhaps they figured Gamaliel's words were beginning to reveal that, in fact, their movement was of man and not of God, and that it was really about to fail. And so they were probably wondering, is this it? 
Did I waste my time? Did I put myself on the line? Now people know I'm a Christian, and so I'm not going to be persecuted now too, all for nothing. And so it's right here in the midst of all this chaos. People are fleeing town. Saul is going about ravaging the church. That Stephen's, and we see some some glimmers of hope. And this glimmer of hope, one of these glimmers of hope, as we'll see, is Stephen's body is laid to rest by these men. But beyond this, a, a bigger point, I think, as we reflect back on what Jesus said at the beginning of the book, when he told them what would happen, we see that all except the apostles, it says at the end of verse 1, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. And now, this was beginning to happen. But he doesn't say, notice, that you should be my witnesses. I want you to be my witnesses. He tells them very clearly, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. He doesn't ask them to go to these places. He knew that they would go to these places because he was going to send them there. That's the glimmer of hope in this text. Christ is sending his people. Though it all seems difficult and bleak, Christ is still on his throne. This is all lingering in the background of this text And it's a major reminder, if we have eyes to see, of Christ's sovereign lordship over this difficult situation. He is still the tender shepherd who is watching over his flock. And this is made even more clear by Luke's use of the word scattered here, which in Greek comes from the word which means to sow seed, sowing seed. As you're walking around, you you would have taken a bag with you in the ancient world and you would have had your fields ready. They would be tilled and you would go around and you would just scatter seed. And so that's the word picture that's being used here when we read of being scattered. And so when we hear Luke say this, that they were scattered, we can imagine the Lord Jesus was simply flinging forth the seed of his kingdom to all these different places in the world knowing that in due time, a harvest would come that could not be denied. But this also means that the very man who was wreaking havoc, who was ravaging the churches or or destroying the churches, depending on our translation, that he, Saul, was being used actually to advance it. In his haste to uproot what he saw as being weeds in God's garden, he actually without knowing it, was scattering the seeds far and wide. This is like somebody who may remove weeds from their garden without knowing it. They may pick them up in haste and all the seeds may be released. And they've now made their problem worse. And that's exactly what is happening here. He was really proving that beyond a shadow of a doubt, Stephen's testimony was true. As Stephen was being stoned to death, he looked up and he said that he saw the Lord Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of God. Saul was proving that was the case. He truly was standing at the right hand of God. Try as he might to destroy it, all he was really doing was being used to help it grow. And so, though it may be a little bit cheeky, we could say that even before Saul became a Christian, he was a very effective 
evangelist. So in this dark early chapter of the church's life, right when it all seemed lost and like right when it all seemed like it was all going downhill, like it was the bottom of the ninth with two outs, no runners on, down by five, and it's a full count, we see a little glimmer of hope in this scattering of the gospel's seed. Saul and all the Christians whom he was persecuting were about to find out how true Gamaliel's words were. Because this movement is of God, no one was going to be able to stop it. And so from this grand truth, we can begin to draw out two incredible takeaways, two lessons from God's words this, this morning. The first is simple, and it's a saying I'm sure you've heard a thousand times before, but it's quite clear in this passage. God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. And in our passage this morning, we really see that there are two different kinds of crooked sticks. There are the crooked sticks of bad people, like Saul, and there are the crooked sticks of bad situations. And as we've been seeing, things looked bleak for the early church in the wake of Stephen's death. They were being hunted down like foxes. They were being jailed. They were being attacked, possibly even being killed from what we can gather. But in it all, God was at work. God was still God. Christ was still shepherding the flock. And so even as we face bleak seasons, bleak moments in life, and everything seems to be going wrong, we must remember that we serve the one who stands at the right hand of God. We must remember the risen Christ who works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And remember those words from Romans chapter 8. They were written by who? By Saul. Saul, years later, would write these words. God works for the good of all who love him, who are called according to his purpose. It's quite amazing. And he writes that to the scattered church in Rome. So no matter what you are going through, no matter what you're facing, you must always remember the benevolent sovereignty of God on your behalf, his goodness to you. But perhaps you you wonder, Zach, you don't know me. You don't know how messed up I am. You don't know the amount of sin that I have committed, not even in my lifetime, but even this week, maybe even today, this morning before I even came to church. I don't think God can use me. I don't think God blesses me. God blesses good people, but not people like me. And if that's you, I'm happy to tell you that you are absolutely wrong. The fact that Saul even appears here in the story this morning is proof positive that God does not give up on sinful, wicked, vile people but he rescues them and he saves them from their sin. This is the power of our God. And so if you are feeling this morning the weight of your sin, the Apostle Paul is always a good example of someone to turn to. He calls himself the chief of sinners. And so if that's not a good example of how you may feel, then I don't know what may be. God saves Sinners. That's a profound and simple point of the Christian faith. In fact, the 19th century theologian, giant of Princeton, B.B. Warfield, 
once said that the whole of the Calvinist faith can be summed up in three words. Maybe he's overstating his case just a tad. I think it's more to it than this. But he says, Calvinism is summed up in three words. God saves sinners. And if you were to reflect on these three words, you could emphasize each word one at a time. God saves sinners. Not man, not ourselves. We don't save ourselves. God saves sinners. Sinners. He doesn't just make us potentially savable. He actually saves us. And God saves sinners. God does not save the righteous. Jesus did not come to seek the healthy but the sick. So God saves sinners like me and like you, I'm sure. And he uses us for his glory, as he does with Paul. So crooked sticks, straight lines. That is what our God does. And we see that in this text this morning. That's the first major lesson. Nothing new to you, perhaps, but it's one we all need to be reminded of time and time again. It doesn't get old, and it shouldn't get old. Psalm 115, verse 3, tells us that our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And that includes using bad situations and bad people. But as we look ahead to the second lesson, let's remember again Gamaliel's words, that test. If a movement is of God, no one will be able to stop it. What might this mean for us in our increasingly post-Christian world? In a world that sort of religiously believes that religion is no longer needed, that it's dead. What might God be up to now? I think From this passage, given the sort of bleakness of the situation and how the Christians in their time had to respond to it, we might reflect on our own time. Things don't exactly look too great for the Christian faith. So what might God be up to in all of this? Given what we've seen, not only in our text and in how the gospel continued to spread, in spite of all the persecution that the Jewish council could muster, But also, in the past 2,000 years, as that good news has spread from from the ancient uh, center of the world, from Jerusalem, from the Holy Land, it has spread now into Africa and into Asia, and it has spread into Europe and now even to the New World, I think it's safe to assume that God is not done. Things may look difficult, but God is not done. So no one has been able to stop his kingdom, and no one will, not even the gates of hell. That is another important lesson we can learn from this passage. But I think admittedly, just like they were for the early Christians, I think we can say that times are tough for the church these days. We don't live in a time of open, rampant persecution where people are being imprisoned by the dozens or hundreds, thousands Uh, We don't live in a time where people are being openly slaughtered in the streets for their Christian faith. Um, And I'm not really a fan of saying that we Western Christians are being persecuted. Partly because if, if I hear people say this, I think it makes light of the real persecution that is happening for Christians around the world. And so I hesitate to use that sort of terminology myself. Uh, But while we do not face that kind of physical persecution, I think it would be foolish of us to pretend that Christians are not, in many ways, marginalized or looked down upon, uh, rejected, scoffed at, ridiculed for their beliefs and for their ethics, the way that they 
live. Sure, some of us may say that we, we only have ourselves to blame, uh, and there's some truth to this. Uh, the church has ver- been very imperfect, and this has been seen very clearly uh, over the last several decades as stories of scandals have come out, not just from the Roman Catholic Church, but really from basically every denomination uh, known to man. And there has not only been scandals, but there's been teachers who have abused their power, and there have been ways that the church has been abusive, and so we cannot deny this. We must absolutely recognize it, stare it in the face, and lament it. But I think if we're honest, I think it's not true that we only have ourselves to blame. Brothers and sisters, we are engaged in a real spiritual battle. And it shouldn't take a social scientist, a sociologist, to tell us that Christianity is marginalized in many ways. Uh, And I believe that more than anything, this is because our faith stands directly opposed to many many of the deepest held sort of quasi-religious beliefs of our world today. And I don't say this because I want to stoke up zealous opposition. I don't want to make a call to arms to fight the culture wars. That's not my hope at all. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not even a political battle. And it's easy for us to forget that as we think about our place as Christians in the world today. But what I do want to ask is the question like this. What does the fact that we're facing a particularly strong spiritual opposition mean for us today? How, we, how might we make sense of what's going on? And maybe more importantly, how might we live in light of what's taking place around us? We've got to live with our eyes wide open. This is a huge question that many thinkers and authors uh, are, who are much smarter than I, who have thought about this question much longer than I, Uh, have been writing about and responding to. And if you're curious, I'd be happy to point you to some resources. You can come talk to me after church. I have several books that I think are helpful in this regard. Uh, But I do want to take a quick stab at it. I know I won't be as maybe nuanced or as thought-provoking as they might be, but I do want to gesture in the direction of how might Christians live in our times. Our times are complex, they're complicated, and it's not like the whole world is very, very, very angry with the church. It's, it's just some. We, we have to realize that there's, it's a complex time. It's not just one monolithic movement against the church. The world is much more variegated than that. But what are some good starting points for Christians living in this post-Christian world? I think we can use our text for a few really good starting points. And this is how I'll sort of wrap things up here this morning. I'll give you three points. First, I think we need to recover the virtue of Christian courage. Christian courage. In verse 2 of our text this morning, if you still have your Bibles, we read that even as Saul was lurking about, hunting these Christians down, there was a few godly men, we're told, who buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. The juxtaposition here is more than a little bit jarring. Thinking about what kind of chaos is taking place all around them. And, how, and yet here they are, continuing on, going out, having a public ceremony to bury Stephen and to mourn for him. Mourning in these days was something you would do 
quite publicly. It was something that was quite clear to those around you, that you were in a state of mourning. And so this would have been an incredibly risky uh, move to make, considering the circumstances, and yet they carried on, and they did it anyway. Another example of courage in our text this morning, though, is seen in verse 1, as we read that all except the apostles fled town. All except the apostles. Now, it's common whenever Luke is writing to use all, the word all, in a sort of hyperbolic sense. I don't think it's true that literally every single Christian fled town. Uh, The apostles, they stayed back. A lot of them were being captured, and so the apostles stayed back. Not, Not fearing for their own lives, they decided to stay and to shepherd the flock, to do what they could. They put their necks on the line in order to to stay back and to help those around them. And so I think this is the kind of courage we will need, the kind of courage where we're willing to risk everything for the sake of the kingdom of God. Biblically speaking, courage is nothing more than a simple byproduct of a strong faith in God and in his goodness to his elect, to his people. And this is why faith is often contradistinguished in the Gospels uh, with fear. You of little faith, Jesus will often say to his disciples. Uh, And this is also why Paul, again, it's interesting how he's used in this story. Paul, in the letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians, at the very end, charges the leaders of the church there to be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. And so how can we grow in courage then in our times? I think the answer is that we can do so by remembering together and reminding ourselves of all that God has done for his people throughout history and even in our lives today. It's no wonder that some of the most stirring and triumphant songs of the Old Testament are found in the historical psalms of the Psalter. These are psalms like Psalm 78. Psalm 105, Psalm 106, and others, which stirringly reflect on the mighty deeds of God in the past in order to bolster courage in the present. They often will reflect on the Exodus story and what God did to to destroy the Egyptians, to remove their yoke of being masters over the enslaved Israelites, and to bring them through the Red Sea on dry land, and to give them the promised land. And as they conquered the promised land, they went to battle. And so God, in all these ways, was with them and was faithful to them. And so these Israelites reflected on this time and time again. And so we must do the same. We must read those Psalms. We must read the Scriptures we can also reflect on what God has done all throughout human history and even in our own lives. The more we do this, the more our courage and our faith will grow. Secondly, in our current cultural moment, we need to keep living out the faith. Now, I've made this ambiguous on purpose. Living out the faith. Okay, Zach, what do you mean by that? I think this is another lesson we can gather from these godly men who buried Stephen. Their courage was revealed in their commitment to simply continue on doing simply what Christians do. Before I went off to seminary, I was wondering, you know, I wonder if my struggle in seminary will be the struggle of intellectualizing my faith. 
I wonder if I'll be spending so much time studying the scriptures, studying theology, church history, apologetics, philosophy, if I'll just sort of lose my faith because it will become merely an intellectual enterprise. And so as I was wondering about this, I found a little tiny booklet called How to Stay a Christian in Seminary, uh, which you may think is an ironic title, but I think it was a helpful book. And it was probably 50 pages, and it was really small. It was not, not really a full book. Uh, it was more like a long essay. And one of the most profound points in this little booklet was this. You stay a Christian in seminary by being a Christian in seminary. Profound point. You stay a Christian by being a Christian. And so in our present times, we must remember, and maybe in some of our cases, recover the historic, ancient practices and rhythms of the Christian life. Sometimes we think that there's a new cure, a new thing that must be done. We're always looking for the newest trend or the newest fad. But I think this story of these men who faithfully carried on a funeral service for their friend show us something. Christianity is a way of life, and we we do well to stick with it. This means we commit ourselves to things like community, what we're doing here this morning, to worship, to fellowship, prayer, scripture reading, daily, and so on. All of these things that you you know what to do. I don't have to sit here and tell you, but we need to commit ourselves to them all the more because they are what form us in the image of Christ. And so, again, we don't need something new. What we need is the historic, classical Christian faith. We need to practice that and live that out in our lives As the author of Hebrews famously puts it in chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, he says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Love and good deeds. Things that Christians are always called to do, no matter the circumstances. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So to stay a Christian, you must be a Christian. Third and finally, in our current cultural moment, we need to keep being Christ's witnesses to all the earth. Though they were hunted down and persecuted, these Christians did not grow weary, but we're told in verse 4, very matter-of-factly, it's kind of unmiraculous in the way that Luke describes it. He says, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. But that is profound. They preached the word wherever they went, knowing that this was for sure going to put them in more trouble in the places that they went. A lot of them went to other places that were occupied by many, many Jews, and so this was going to put them in direct opposition. And if we jump ahead a few chapters to Acts chapter 11, we're able to find out what this actually looked like, what this preaching looked like, and how effective it was. And so in verses 19 through 21 of chapter 11, we read this. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. So they were still sticking with the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. So here marks the great shift of the gospel being proclaimed first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. 
the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So what was happening in Jerusalem with the gospel spread now begins to happen in Judea and Samaria, and as we read later on throughout the book, to the ends of the earth. And so if what we read earlier with the persecution uh, that began after Stephen's death was a situation of, or a classic example of a situation going from bad to worse, what we read here is, to, to use the common phrase, a situation of people who were making lemonade from lemons. They were being sent out, cast out, hunted down, and so they're being dispersed and scattered, and they are making the most of it. They were scattered like seeds such that the kingdom of God was beginning to take root and bloom, not only in Jerusalem, but now throughout the known world. And this is particularly instructive for us today. Come what may, for Christians, we must continue being witnesses to the resurrected Lord and to his gospel. This doesn't mean we need to get aggressive This doesn't mean we need to shove it down people's throats. In fact, it's never meant that. The ends of evangelism never justify the means. But it does mean that we need to keep bearing witness, both with our lips and with our lives, to the kingdom of Christ and to the grace that he freely offers to any sinner who will turn to him in faith. Amen? Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for the stirring encouragement of our brothers and sisters who lived many, many years ago. Though they faced terrible opposition, you were faithful to them. And Lord, you are standing at the right hand of the Father. And we are thankful that you today are still our shepherd. And we ask, Lord, that you would encourage us to take heart and to continue living the Christian faith and sharing it with those around us for your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen.